we must restore meaning to the great ideas, partly conflicting ideas, by which mankind is still living. The ideas of liberalism, democracy, and communism. Yes, the idea of communism. Hello, and welcome to Marxism in Our Time a new podcast of Marxist Ideas and Debate from the Deutsche Prize Committee. Thanks for tuning in. The Deutsche Prize is an award given in honour of the historian Isaac Deutscher, who you just heard there in our intro addressing students in Berkeley during a teaching against the Vietnam War in 1965. Each year, the prize is awarded to a book which exemplifies the best and most innovative new writing in or about the Marxist tradition. My name's Kane Shelley. In each episode, I'll be joined by a different member of the prize committee in hosting an author of a book that made it to our 2021 shortlist. The winner of the prize in 2021 was Ronald Sunni's Stalin, published by Princeton University Press, and Sunni will deliver this year's Deutsche Lecture in November. We want to use this podcast to showcase all the other fantastic books that made the shortlist, hopefully introducing a wide range of contemporary Marxist thinking to an audience that might otherwise miss the debates happening in journals and academic books. Our thanks to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for helping to fund this initiative. Today, for our final episode of this season, I'm joined by committee member Rob Knox, and our guest is Hermani Banerjee, presenting and discussing her book, The Ideological Condition, Selected Essays on History, Race and Gender, published in 2020 by Brill as part of its historical materialism book series. Hermani Banerjee is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Sociology at York University in Canada. Her interests encompass anti-racist feminism, Marxism, critical cultural theory, and historical sociology. Her previous books include Inventing Subjects, Studies in Hegemony, Patriarchy, and Colonialism from 2001, and Thinking Through, Essays on Feminism, Marxism, and Anti-Racism from 1995. Imani, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Rob, I'll now hand over to you to kick off the discussion. First of all, Thank you so much, Imani, for joining us today and congratulations once again on being shortlisted. For those of you who've seen the book, you'll know that it is an absolutely huge work covering a, a real breadth of subjects, all of which Hermani has worked on throughout her life. And so it touches on a whole bunch of themes. So what I wanted to do firstly was draw out a few of them. And I thought it was useful to start with a kind of biographical question, which I think usefully sets up the kind of themes of the book. And so, Hermania, I was wondering if you would be able to describe a little bit um, your own experiences in the communist movement and the tensions between the communist movement and the second wave of second wave feminism, which emerged in the 1960s. So there was a divide in communism and feminism that emerged in my late teens and 20s, where we were not getting along so well about in that way. And my earliest acquaintance with that division was the way Sheila Robotham stated it in her book, Women's Consciousness, Man's World, and where she actually died. And at that time, you know, she was, this was a phenomenally important one because it was done from within a left movement. She was an SWP person. I was associated with the Communist Party. So with all of that, you know, we kept looking for how can it be my movement, right? In theory, in ethics, they would say it is. But actually the leadership 
and the unconscious perception of what is to be done and how and what are the cardinal issues uh, became really very much there were quiet smuggled in issues of male middle class upper class this was the background so the underneath this um, divided approach double consciousness and i might say quoting hegel even unhappy consciousness in self-reflection was two parts of ourselves the communist and the feminist part but it was just not only in ourselves you know it was our searching look at the political parties theorization of leninist communism and even trotskyist communism to see how this question of every day the question of subjects experience uh, kind of a rounded picture of ex our experience could be presented and when i came to canada really i mean by being meeting my feminist comrades here or i would say my sisters at that time because comrades sisters hadn't emerged yet they, you were either a comrade or a sister so uh, how to be both was really the question now, the book is obviously called um, The Ideological Condition. So I was really curious to hear how you situate your own work in relation to other Marxist theories of, of ideology. What is distinct about your approach to ideology and what do you find missing in these kind of existing Marxist accounts of ideology? It became very important for me to think about how have the uh, question of class struggle been framed by uh, in terms of uh, projects of consciousness and projects of economy. Now, as I was growing up, I mean, much older than when I came across books like uh, Lukash's work or later, let us say, um, other works by people like, you know, uh, Koshev and Kolakovsky and Mitsarosh and, you know, and even Bartol Ullmann's book on alienation and all that, one began to see that uh, the question of consciousness seemed to be missing in formulating class and class struggle and that they had to be brought together. They could not be separated out as philosophical marks on one hand and the marks of consciousness and critical thinking. Uh, so, you know, I think in some way, critical theory itself resulted from some of that Adorno and after. So, um, and the experience of Althusser as for us was also a very mixed one because on one hand, Althusser permitted, or in a way he sublated ideology into the structure of uh, ruling of capitalism. The state apparatus itself was ideological. But on the other hand, I think we lost something of the particularity of what is ideology in making everything ideological, right? As before, the economic interpretation of class made everything economistic or economic, which we call economistic because of its reductive nature we could say that Althusser kind of did something on the other side, not culture so much, but a structuralist perception of ideology. 
and which is pervasive, almost like uh, original sin that we cannot escape from. We are in the labyrinth of ideology. However far you go, your subjectification is within this ideology. Similarly with Foucault, though I think that Althusser had more uh, Marxist view and you could actually make some actionable politics out of that. I don't know that I can, I can use Foucault very well to very bad, you know, strongly criticize the, the panopticon of ideology we are in, but I can't really use Foucault to say where liberation is going to come from. Where is the opening? Where is the fissure from which we can have contradiction enough that we can fight it out? So in a way, um, I don't know whether one would say Foucault is ultimately stoic, uh, but on the, along the way, very rebellious, but it's not revolutionary. To me, it's a radical rebellious position and rather depressing in the sense that everything becomes the same. Now you try to anyone who goes to power uh, has the same power and democracy becomes equal to uh, authoritarianism or even fascism when you think like that. But I don't think so. I think that there is a really distinct difference. So where, do, what would I be finding missing in this situation uh, with Althusser, uh, while I agreed with part of him and I learned a lot, is uh, that uh, I began to ask, is there a break in Marx? You know, Althusser's famous formulation of the epistemological break. And I didn't think that there was a really a break in Marx from his humanist philosophical position to that of becoming writer of capital, you know, working with the international, uh, look, you know, being absolutely uh, on side and understanding class and class struggle. So to me, that was really a deepening on Marx's part, but not a separation from the early Marx to the later Marx. And uh, I thought that for me, the coming as I did from the uh, communist background, as well as a literary background, I used to teach English and comparative literature for a long time and studied. So I found that that question of consciousness ideology became very central. And I began with the proposition asking Althusser perhaps to begin with, is, is all thought ideological? And reading German ideology and other kinds of works of Marx, I felt that whereas uh, ideology is always a form of thought, no for all forms of thoughts are not ideological. There are non-ideological thinking. So my interest was then what is ideology so that I can make a distinction between revolutionary knowledge and forms of consciousness, practical consciousness, and then ideological consciousness. So my first point of departure was really from German ideology combined, I would say, with the Communist Manifesto, uh, 18 Brumaire, and, uh, and the civil war in France, 
and so on, that where I had to pause and ask, you know, what part role does consciousness and idea play in this uh, revolutionary transformation we want to be? And this was, a, I was aided in this by Gramsci. You know, Gramsci was not very popular, at least in India, in the 50s and 60s in my development period. And Gramsci's translation, as a selected notebooks translation, came later, but even if it did, it did not go to India. Uh, so took a while for Gramsci to become popular, and that was probably in the 60s that the Communist Party, not the party so much, but individual communists began to use Gramsci and write Gramsci, you know, essays based on Gramsci. So from Gramsci, the notion of hegemony, notions of common sense, the misappropriation of notion of subalternity that as some people have made, uh, all that became important. And I began to see that Gramsci implicated consciousness majorly in the way he thought about becoming, uh, you know, in an essay like the, uh, the, the, on the prince, the new prince, that the communist party becomes a hegemonic or a, he didn't call it that because I think he was in the, because he was in the prison. But the fact is that, that what he talks about this is emergence of, uh, directorial relation or dirigente relation of, of people to the party came in through the work of, uh, I would say, creating the war of position, passive revolution, and all of which indicated a changing consciousness among the masses. And I felt that he asked the question that we, Lenin didn't, I would say, that we were which is that that what not is what is to be done only, but what was not done, that after all that work for communism, Italians ended up by having fascism. You know, once Mussolini and uh, Gramsci worked together in their in their socialist newspaper, and then one went towards fascism, the other went to developing the Communist Party of Italy. Now, what was not done, I thought Gramsci was saying, is that the every political party or class to be hegemonic, they have to do some cultivation of the soil of consciousness so that they become like a common sense of communism or socialism um, in order to be able to last as a kind of an enduring state grounded in a society. And the state and society are not just in a, a schismatic relationship, but actually they're mutually forming. And I think that that helped me to clarify three things. One is how Marx thought about class and class struggle, how the party thought about class and class struggle, and what we need to do is really politicize the question of consciousness. And in this, I was also subsequently helped by Walter Benjamin, 
you know his essay on the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction, where he says something, you know, which I thought was important coming from literature myself, that, uh, you know, communists politicize aestheticism and fascist aestheticize politics. So this aestheticization of politics and distancing it from the daily life, class, class struggle and social consciousness, uh, I think is what became a very important directive for me. So am I with you so far? I mean, honestly, no, this, that, that's just been um, really great. <laughs> to hear about all the um all the the depths of that and i mean i, I think you know one thing which it, which is also clear in, you, in in your work actually then when we just when we're flipping back to um your your discussion about say um the personal and the political is of course one thing that some of those marxists didn't do was to kind of historicize the conditions in which you could even imagine the personal and the political as being so separate in the first place and what that might be an effect of, right? They, they weren't asking historical materialist questions about their own sense of historical materialism, which I think really comes through strongly um, in the way in which you then try and reconstruct all of, all of the kind of different differential relationships between what some people will call forms of oppression, between race and gender and, and class in that kind of way. So coming off of this, this, this broader discussion about historical materialism and, and on that thought, I was wondering how you would describe your own understanding of historical materialism and how do you think that your account of historical materialism draws on and compares to, for instance, Marx and Engels' own renderings of it? What is uh, historical materialism in Marx? When you read, let's say, 1848, uh, his work on that or his work on uh, on 18 Brumaire and so on, is that that uh, it became dialectical materialism. I don't want to blame Engels. I mean, I learn a lot from him. But dialectical materialism transposed a philosophical proposition as though always already we knew when the dialectic was happening. And when the party claimed the knowledge of dialectics, it claimed the knowledge for absolute knowledge the right to direct people in an absolute manner because they knew when the resolution was happening. Historical materialism doesn't do that, right? Historical materialism sees the formational aspect and it class as a forming thing, constantly forming and not and re-dash forming and in various modes of life, not just in the workplace, not in the immediate exploitation in the context of production of surplus value and wage labor, but also the society as a whole has to be that. You know, Marx talks about it in Grundrisse when he says that the entire mode of production is bathed by the same illumination. You remember that? He talks about the uh, capital being, you know, illuminating the entire mode of production. And I think that that is really very important. It's in Grundrisse that he's not just talking about only the action that takes place in the situ, in situ of immediate labor exploitation. He's talking about an entire society, entire mindset that is needed in order to be able to sustain and constantly sustain capitalist production and reproduction. So one figure who is clearly a big inspiration on you and your work 
and is cited throughout the book, but who is also not that familiar to Marxists, perhaps, is Dorothy Smith. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about her and what you learned from her and what kind of contribution you thought that her work made to your own work on ideology and beyond. Dorothy E. Smith, much underestimated, I think, in the left circle, uh, known generally as a standpoint theorist and uh, feminist sociologist, I think has to be read by all of us. She's just died on the 3rd of June at the age of 95, was my PhD supervisor, and all the way up she has been in my life. And I cannot sufficiently uh, express my debt to her that she helped me to understand how to read Marx's concept of ideology by seeing ideology as something that specialist intellectuals do rather than what common everyday people do. And from the specialists and so on come categories, theories, which become the organizing categories for capitalist institutions. And they are actually legally enshrined. And these categories are the categories through which imprisonment to uh, everyday welfare, life of giving women welfare, violence against women. This can all serve ideologically when the, they're deployed in the function of uh, ruling apparatus towards the people that are ruled. And that we live in a divided world where we have our everyday consciousness, which we use with each other, our daily consciousness of living, loving, being ill, seeing people die, raising children, versus what the institution do, they do. So uh, in her work, Dorothy really showed me, I had to make a distinction between the everyday life of our consciousness and experience and what she called the institutional capture of our needs by the state in order to make the ruling apparatus grow and reproduce. Am I with you, do you see? It makes perfect sense. And actually that is what I wanted to ask you in this context. Like, how do you think that makes us, helps us make sense of literally what's happening today? So for listeners, we are recording this just a few days after the Supreme Court's decision in, in Roe v. Wade, to overturn Roe v. Wade, I should say. And, you know, what seems like a veritable free-for-all on women's reproductive rights and at the same time, we're seemingly in a kind of reactionary storm in terms of gender, race, all of these kind of things coming coming under attack. And I was, I'm really interested to, to see how you make sense of that within this kind of framework, and, and what you think we can, we can, how we can use that to understand what's going on. When I look at Roe versus Wade, uh, and it's overturning by the American Supreme Court. I have to rem remember that this is uh, my participation in women's struggle in Canada began the Ro before Roe versus Wade. And in Canada, I was not in the States, there were bombings of, uh, of abortion clinics. There was uh, persecution of someone called Morgenthaler 
uh, Morgan Toller used to have clinics he gave women. He was a camp survivor of Nazi camps, and he gave women the, the ability to exercise their reproductive rights by opening these clinics for he was constantly sued and went through fines and closures of clinics day after day. Now, so this curtailment, this misogyny, I would call almost, of the towards women on the part of the established orders and the hidden imperatives of Christianity within that, a fundamentalist Christianity within that, was really evident to me, you know, ever since I got here. And in contrast, I have to tell you that in India, since the 50s, abortion was legal. If not only legal, but advocated by the state in order, as a for, the word was population control, right? There were slogans, we two and our one. So husband, wife, and a child, not to do. They didn't have like China, one child directly policy, but they sloganed and sloganed and really helped in tubal ligation and in uh, hysterectomy and in all these kinds of things, mainly these surgical things, uh, in order to stop population growth, right? So in our eyes, abortion was nothing unusual when I came here, right? And then I come to an advanced capitalist country and I find women fighting on the street and I join them. You know, Dorothy, myself, Mary O'Brien, many others were on the street and we watch a clinic being bombed by the white supremacists who are like giving the right of humanity, humanity to the fetus, but depriving that humanity right to women to make any kind of dignified personal you know, um, decision about their bodies and what to do with it. So it was a very new novel experience and the contrast really helped. So when to further than that, when I was earlier when we were here, I mean, I had, I, I raised a child here and I get got paid some money by the state for childcare. It, it was not very little, but you know, okay, that helped. But in Quebec, which felt very much under threat of Anglophone Canada, and the death of Francophonie in Canada, they gave a huge amount, much more for their um, their family, child uh, subsidy than we ever got. And Quebec's government gave more and more money to a mother who produced more children. And this really became a thing that made Quebec, keep Quebec Francophone you know, implicitly white, probably Catholic, though Quebec population was very resistant to Catholicism and, you know, basically wanted to bomb church churches. But the fact is, in another way, the state accomplished having large families through making this kind of income possible by uh, giving more and money, more money per child. So when you look at Roe versus Wade in the context, since we are doing historical materialism, the whole material fact of women's body and general right of people themselves, you know, in a non-slave condition to be able to be 
decisive about their body and their application and changes, uh, we saw a kind of a state imperative and a Christian imperative to have produce white children. And I don't think that it was meant for, and I don't think Roe versus Wade is meant for either black women and brown women. They are, but you know, since they shouldn't multiply, but now they'll get, they, they won't be stopped. You know, they think that blacks have very big families or brown people have very big families. So they can't stop that. But what do they want from it? And I think from my very suspicious point of view, they want white women to have white babies. And that the national identity of America, which is really well depicted in D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, uh, which is the story of the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, and all of that white supremacism that becomes evident in George Floyd's and uncountable murders that are happening in the United States by the police and by at large uh, white people of black uh, Ahmed Abri or he's running through a neighborhood, they shoot him. So this kind of mistreatment of the black body and women's body go kind of together and they do want white women, I think, to give a white, create a white Canada, America. And probably it will come to Canada because we are always like a few years behind, but we follow it. So I don't know whether I sound extremely, there must be many other reasons, but given my experience, history and writing previously on caste, race, gender and racialization, I think that there is underneath this whole thing of not only Trump's make America great again, but make America white again. And, uh, and I think that this is for us who are socialists, um, we have to think in a much more complex way about ideology forms of consciousness, because when there is a crisis and US is in a crisis economically, it's in a kind of a shell of an economy except the, in the military industrial complex, then uh, that country in this economy will always fall back, its national identity will always fall back on the worst possible common denominators that they can find among people. And they have, they have gone actually to a genomic structure of US, which is the foundation on race and sexist racism misogyny, etc. And to end this tirade, I want to say something about the fact that the eugenics experiments that Germany did came from initially from the United States. That is where United States is where the eugenics and the master race and the better race and so on came on. Even when I came here, you know, it was in 69, the uh, Atlanta Disease Control Center soon made an apology for, to black communities because they kept black people uh, infected with syphilis uh, to see what tertiary syphilis looks like without giving them any treatment. And these experiments were um, absolutely hidden until the 60s and 70s when, um, you know, 
our critical uh, anti-racist, socialist, communist people came out with these secrets. Uh, Canada had, in up to 70s, a place in Alberta where they would have, um, uh, they would uh, not euthanize, but they would sterilize uh, disabled women. And, uh, you know, where does it all come from? I mean, why, why do people take on these projects? And unless there is a material grounding, historical material grounding, on the basis of which all civilizations have been created. You know, and what we call European education and civilization, there is a, you know, there's the radical enlightenment part of it on truth, justice, etc., which we all need and want. But why does it not happen equally to everybody? You know, why are some people seen as human and others achieving, still waiting to achieve their humanity so that they can be treated equally or justly, that a real democracy can happen. So this is my take on all this. I went on for too long, but uh, I did have to get it off my chest. I've been so upset with what's going on. You certainly did not go on too long, but I think we actually need to wrap up now just because we are over time. What you just did there was weave together the various ways in which the different aspects of the capitalist totality have these internal connections in ways which we can only understand racism by understanding imperialism, by understanding sexism, by understanding the nature of capitalist modes of accumulation and cycles of accumulation, which I think is exactly the right point in which we can think about this and is, in, is running through your book, which is the degree to which these things are differentiated but internally connected through that kind of historical materialist logic and i really think that means that was a great answer and kind of is i think is a perfect place for us to stop that now so thanks so much for being here money and congratulations again on being shortlisted for what is a wonderful book thank you thanks to rob and imani for that fascinating discussion that just about wraps it up for this season of episodes We'll be back again soon with more interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. In the meantime, please do subscribe and please do also check out our previous episodes with Dina Zuvala, Francesca Antonini, Maya Powell and Panagiotis Sotiris, if you haven't already. Our thanks again to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for their help funding this new initiative. You can find out more about them by following the link in the description. You can also find more info about the Deutsche Prize and find out how to nominate titles at our website link below. Thanks for listening.